Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today I'm joined by Anish Chopra, who's here at the Kennedy School's Shorenstein Center this spring, as a Walter Shorenstein Media and Democracy Fellow. He previously served as the United States' first ever chief technology officer under President Obama, and is the author of Innovative State, How New Technologies Can Transform Government. He's also a Kennedy School alumnus. Anish, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, your book pulls quite a bit from your experience uh, in the Obama administration starting in 2009. Uh, before that, you, you served in the Virginia government. Um, what was it that kind of drew you to this idea of the interface between technology and, and government specifically? Well, it's what motivated me to come to the Kennedy School in the first place. I was born and raised in an era where the Internet became a very important resource in our lives. I had finished college right uh, at 1994 when the first uh, browsers were coming to life. Uh, went and worked at a company called Morgan Stanley where we took Netscape public. I wasn't on that team. I was on the healthcare team. But I observed just the frenzy around the power and potential of, of the internet to transform our lives. And as I came to the Kennedy School, I had the honor and privilege of assisting a course whose whole reason was thinking about the business, legal, policy implications of the internet, and it was jointly offered by the Kennedy School, the law school, and the business school. I think it was the first time professors from each school jointly developed a course, and it was on this very important and timely topic. And so my PAE, my, my proverbial master's thesis, was around how internet technologies could help healthcare and most specifically academic medical centers, and carried that idea forward. When I Served in the private sector, I was studying and evaluating what were the conditions for how healthcare could be transformed by the power of the internet. And then Governor Kane kindly offered me a chance to serve as his Secretary of Technology, but it was mostly after an hour-long interview about the power of health IT to transform the delivery system. So this was a passion of mine, something I'd looked at from the private sector and then later in life, the public sector. You write in your book about how U.S. federal government historically has been kind of at the leading edge of technology, and now it is very much behind. How did that happen? Well, let me begin by some optimistic views, which is I believe in reversion to the mean, which means nothing but great news ahead on our ability to close this innovation gap. Uh, there were three uh, big reasons for the stall. Uh, the first was a uh, what I would consider to be kind of a premium position uh, failure. We, we were the best in the world. We had the best systems. We were running uh, arguably the best-run government. And uh, in many ways, we, we failed to, to look over our shoulder, to think differently about how we were delivering services and uh, uh, making sure we could meet the, the goals of the country. Uh, the second, perhaps most practical reason, is that we found ourselves encumbered with legacy infrastructure. And what that had meant is that as uh, other sectors of the American economy had been transformed largely by the power of the Internet, we found ourselves still holding on to the vestiges of the older style of, of the use of information technology in our operations. And so we, we, we've seen a, a kind of a leapfrogging in how the rest of the world, many of whom are now building natively on the internet for how they run their government, especially in Eastern European countries, that we've kind of missed that particular boat. I would say the third reason, and perhaps the, the biggest reason, I believe, is, is a sense of culture, a notion that we can and should uh, uh, embrace uh, new ideas, new product development, changing the way we deliver services. And that comes from, well, I have a program, I'm funded to do a certain thing, 
I've incrementally improved that budget and I'm going to achieve maybe a little bit more in, in what that's expected of me. But, but most of the political debate being about what new things we can add to the government as opposed to how can we transform the way we deliver the things that we already are supposed to be doing. And that cultural shift uh, I think uh, is something that, that constraint I should say has been has been an issue for us to, to grapple with and something we've been working very clearly on in the last uh, five years. So if the federal government in a uh, you know in a, in another world had actually kept up with all the latest technologies, what would the world look like today? What would be different? Is this something that uh, you know it would just be behind the scenes? Things would be operating more efficiently, or would you know individual no. citizens be seeing real real changes? Uh, well, I think three things would have happened, and I think you're starting to see them happening now. Number one, the line between public and private sector would dissipate. And what you might think of previously as the delivery of a government service might actually find its way into your home via a private service. And one manifestation of that would be today you visit healthcare.gov to go shopping, but if you're an Uber driver, you've got a relationship with a startup called Stride Health that offers you more personalized recommendations on top of the data at healthcare.gov to make hopefully better choices for you so you can make better choices on, on the plans that might be better for those who have back pain or whatever the situation might be. Mm -hmm. So point number one is this porous line, public and private, would sort of uh, blend as, as the delivery of services occur because of a better handoff uh, between the, the public and the private sector. Uh, second, you just have a lot more choice. I think there would be, you know, this is concept in government that there should be no wrong door and that you should be able to enter government and have whatever experience you want. Um, I actually think of this as an idea around many better doors, mm -hmm. and they may come from the government and they may come from the private sector, but there should be lots of choice. So if I want to find a job, yes, most certainly I could uh, file for unemployment benefits and perhaps use the government-funded uh, database on which to post my resume and to search for jobs. But that is a door, a path do pathway. But there could be many better doors. I could log into my LinkedIn profile and have it provide for me contextually relevant recommendations to say, here are the best fit opportunities for you. Or I could go to a Coursera platform that says, by the way, based on the skills that you've already got, if you only do this two or three sets of courses, you might have the skills that are highly in demand in the market to so come take those courses and then go back into the workplace. You'd have systems working for you uh, in, in, in greater number. And then last but certainly not least, I think we would have a new debate as to how the nation tackles problems. So today we're having a debate on climate change, and it doesn't seem like much of a debate because on one side there's the sense that we've got to do something, and that might impose uh, a price on carbon and to reuse the, the revenue generated uh, to fund R&D, to build a new clean energy economy. For others, it's, well, we don't really have a climate change problem that's man-made, and so we don't need to invest, and we're not going to get... So you're sort of in this stuck-in-the-mud attitude. Well, in, in this third vision of the future, what would happen is, okay, that may be a debate, and we may, may or may not agree, but let's agree on this. The cost to install solar panels, as an example, should be frictionless. If you benchmarked Germany to the United States, there is a $1 billion hidden tax on solar installation providers in the U.S., not because of an ideological battle, but just bureaucratic inertia. The time to get a permit and to finance and to find customers 
is an inefficient method today. And if we applied the best of information technology and we applied this public-private model, maybe we could get to same-day design and installation models. And if we could cut a billion dollars of hidden costs against the solar industry without incurring extra taxpayer costs, might the left and the right agree that we should pursue said endeavor? And mm -hmm. you're starting to see some of that. So those are some of the things that I think we would have probably benefited from earlier, but thankfully we're now in a cycle where that's coming today. Well, what are the biggest hurdles that the federal government in particular faces in trying to implement these these changes and, and have more access to open data and all these things? There were three root cause problems that I saw when given the assignment to close the innovation gap by President Obama. And the first, frankly, is a cultural one. That is to say, the sense of the belief that this is even an effort worth undertaking. And the benefit of having a president who, on day one, on his first full day in office, declared amidst the economic crisis that he would want to usher in a more open and transparent government, issued a memorandum on open government on day one, created the condition, almost like when Procter & Gamble's CEO, A.G. Laffley, said, I want 50% of all of our new products and services to come from ideas outside of Procter & Gamble, shifted the culture of the organization to think differently about their roles. Here, the president said, I want to default to open. So if you happen to have a data set that you've been using internally, but if made more accessible to the American people, could lead to new products and services to help advance the mission objective of your agency, that's what you should do by default. So culturally, we had to get the president's voice clear and to emphasize that as a, as a way to think about problem solving. Second, we borrowed from Jeff Bezos, who famously believed in frontline workers at Amazon and the notion that there should be more democratized innovation practices. People at the front line should be able to think about new ideas, experiment, be rewarded, even if those ideas fail. So again, the principle is, you know, we got 3 million federal non-military you know, non uh, in the civilian workforce. How many of those folks could think differently about their role and their job and, and try and experiment with new ideas? Uh, where is there a safe place for employees to test new ideas without mm -hmm. compromising the daily work that they have very important responsibility for? That became an important issue, creating the systems that would allow for frontline workers to experiment. And then last but not least, the idea that I learned from Facebook, which is at the time there was something like uh, 3,000 employees at Facebook, and I had the honor of sharing stage with Sheryl Sandberg, the chief operating officer, who in preparation for the event had asked her staff to do an assignment. How many people hold the job title Facebook developer? And the crowd listening to her remarks kind of paused. And the answer was 35,000. Now, I'm not good at math, or I should say I was. Uh, and at 35,000 over a base of 3,000 employees didn't compute. Turns out that they made a judgment to open up the developer platform so that if Nike wanted to build a Facebook app, they could do so on their dime. And that person is contributing to the broader Facebook ecosystem. So if government became a platform, all of a sudden, you can imagine the 3 million workers being augmented by 30 million effectively developers working to make the problems that the country faces something that could be tackled in a more open and collaborative way. So those three principles were critical to close the gap, get the culture right, 
put the systems in place to value frontline or democratized ideas for internal collaboration, and then to foster external public-private collaboration using platform dynamics. Those were the key ingredients of what I consider to be an innovative state. You write about the lean startup model. Now, that's, that sounds like the exact antithesis of the federal government. Can you explain what that is? And how, I mean, how could that apply to such an enormous organization? So uh, when Elizabeth Warren, now Senator Warren, was asked by the president to help advise the creation of the new Consumer Protection Bureau, I had the honor and privilege of having lunch with her very early in her tenure, and I asked her kind of a facetious question, which is, would you like to be the last agency lead of an agency of the 20th century or the first of the agencies built in the 21st? And that was sort of a silly question. And obviously she said, sign me up. I'm data-driven. I want to do it cloud first and open up the data and be engaged and participatory democracy. So I, I dispatched my then deputy, Eugene Wong, to spend six months with her to stand up the agency and to think about this issue. Here's an interesting example. We were given the assignment on day one to uh, b simplify the mortgage disclosure form. Too many people were signing on to bad mortgages, and part of the argument was they were duped by sort of confusing paperwork. Now, Congress required that the rules could only be written after they confirmed a director of the agency, which became a bit of a political football. But rather than wait, we turned to the American people and in the spirit of a lean startup, built a proverbial startup, which became No Before You Owe, an initiative to figure out could the American people help us write the new mortgage disclosure form. 17,000 people crowdsourced on a website feedback. What did they like about the proposed forms? What didn't they like about the ones that they thought were not very good? How could they iterate? After six rounds of input from the public, President Obama was able to stand up in front of the American people with a version of the mortgage disclosure form that had not even begun rulemaking, but was built by and for the American people. That was the spirit of a lean government startup. That is to say, you brought experts from the outside, experts from the inside, you iterated, you had a hypothesis, you put a production uh, version of this form out, you got feedback, you used that feedback to take a new version. Again, six versions of the form in less than, I don't know, six months. That is all embracing the principles of how Silicon Valley startups that are managed at scale uh, operate. And that's the culture that we tried to embody in some of these newer, not just a new agency, but even uh, new initiatives within existing agencies. How about some of the more uh, uh, embedded, I guess, uh, things about federal government? I'm thinking specifically about procurement. Uh, that's something that every agency has its own method, and federal government is extremely weighted down by it. Technology seems to be particularly uh, affected by it. Why is that? Well, we spend $80 billion in the federal government on IT, and much of that is purchased using these anachronistic, old, stodgy models that value who you know and the relationships you have, not the capability of your technology. The big joke, as an example, when the healthcare.gov site failed miserably in its first month of operations, it was not actually born on a competitive procurement with open participation. A small subset of pre-qualified beltway bandits were given the opportunity to compete on this task. Something so unbelievably transformative was nothing more than a task order against an existing closed list of Beltway bandits. And that spoke to this unbelievably frustrating concept that government had to have very specific detailed requirements written before you actually go out. Because when you're buying a chair, 
I want to know it's X feet off the ground, it's got four legs, it's got these dimensions. So you write those dimensions and you have furniture companies bid and you pick what you like. But when it comes to something like software or something like I want to build healthcare.gov, you don't really know what the actual specific technical elements are on day one. You want to create a culture of agile development. You want to begin asking, what are the features we want? Let's roll them out. Is that what we were looking for? Let's adjust. Let's build from that. So now uh, the president has unveiled what's called the tech FAR. FAR is the Federal Acquisition Regulation. And it turns out that there was nothing actually wrong with the rules. They were just implemented in a very uh, old-fashioned and less creative way when it came to IT procurement and other kinds of complex procurements. So now there's a very clear roadmap for agencies who want to adopt this more light, agile, iterative methodology and to do so within the legal authority and constraints of the federal acquisition regulation. You don't want to have one vendor given an undue influence over another. You want to avoid conflicts and so forth, but you still want to have that light, agile approach, and that now is part of the culture. Nowhere near complete. We're in the early days, but my, my confidence level is that we're on a path that's going to get to a better place. A few weeks ago, we had Professor Stephen Goldsmith on the program, and he spoke- The legendary. Exactly. Uh, the He spoke about a lot of the same things that you write and talk and, and work on, except for he's talking specifically about cities and state governments to some to some degree. Uh, it seems like that there's a lot of progress that could be made at all levels of government, um, but- And internationally. Yes, of course. Well, all levels of government. Everywhere, yes. Um, so, what are the differences when you're talking about you know large federal governments versus uh, you know small governments? Well, you, what you find in cities is the rubber meets the road. You you have a much closer feedback loop between your end uh, user, if you will, and and the and the government itself. I mean, at the federal government, we're in many cases in the wholesale business. So we might block grant funds, we might block you know regulation and so forth. And so the actual net beneficiary is sort of two or three steps removed from the government itself. And so the idea of iterating to improve the customer interface is something that maybe a few agencies like Social Security or IRS or immigration have a direct hand in, but large swaths of the government have this sort of wholesale to retail model. Cities are very exciting because they can move quickly there's now a best practice around how to think about better management techniques and open data, and those ideas are scaling, and they can scale pretty fast. You can see a great deal of competition and innovation about how to do something as simple as processing pothole uh, repair requests mm -hmm. and ensuring that they get done, and there's a structure to make sure that you're monitoring, measuring, holding people accountable. So cities are a great place uh, to experiment, but it's not an either-or what you find is, let's start with the problem you're trying to solve. If I want to help someone get the health care they deserve, yes, there's a federal program, and there are state rules, and there may be even some city initiatives, but that is largely in the hands of private doctors, hospitals, and nurses. So you have this interesting chain of federal, state, and local connecting to the public and private sectors, all connected in some form or fashion to make sure that you get the right care at the right time and in the right setting. So getting that flow of information across levels of government and between public and private is an important ingredient if we're going to truly solve the problem of if everybody got the right care at the right time and in the right setting, we would cut not 5%, but up to 30% of the dollars we spend today in healthcare. 
That is an enormous amount of money. It would solve our budget deficit issues. It would put us on a stronger fiscal footing for economic growth. The magic that is unlocked if we can get this right is amazing. And it won't be done city against the feds, state against the feds. It'll have to be all pieces and parts playing a role in this broader mosaic of ensuring that we study, learn, and see what works when it comes to ensuring people get the care they want and need and deserve at the time and the setting that's best for them. Professor Goldsmith uh, spoke specifically about the role of leadership and how how important it was to really take advantage of these new technologies. Agreed. Um, you, you mentioned uh, President Obama's role in, in, in his administration. Personally. Exactly. Uh, can you talk a little bit? I mean, it seems like the federal government is so many more layers of bureaucracy. Is it really? Can it really just be uh, you know leadership from one person that changes all of these all of these things? Or? Uh, absolutely, because here's why: the people who wake up in the morning and go to bed at night, walking into a government agency, are mission driven. They want the problem solved. And as a student of the Kennedy School, I traditionally thought of the tools either to regulate sectors of the economy or to fund and ex sort of launch programs uh, that could actually deliver uh, services, directly or indirectly. And if those are the two policy levers that I've woken up to think about on the way home, in today's sort of toxic, partisan, nasty Washington, there's not a lot of hopefulness in the sentiment that I can add more regulations or expand budgets anytime in the near future. So either you're going to be bummed out about what you're going to do, or you're going to hear the call to action by the president that says, look, there's a new path, not at the dismissal of the other, but in addition to, and let's pursue that new path. What data sets are you working on that you can liberate? And if you do, who would you call to ask to use that data set to do something to help people in the area that you have a mission objective? And that notion that you have permission to experiment and engage and to do is something that is very much at the heart of culture. But when you do it in an area where people naturally want to advance the mission objectives, you're not doing it counter to the natural forces of the agency. You're showing them a new path. And what's so exciting about this era of problem solving and why I think this is the decade we're going to make a huge difference in health and energy and education is precisely because we're going to wake up and realize we've got to go to the gym and we're going to work on a new muscle that we haven't worked on in a, in a while. And yes, the president did invite us to do this and encouraged us to go to the gym and maybe perhaps inspired us to get started. But ultimately, what will sustain the effort is the fact that going to this gym, working on this new muscle and deploying these muscles are delivering results for the people we care the most about. And that's going to happen agency by agency, frontline worker all the way up to director to above. And that's happening at all levels of government. This movement is what's catching hold and what I'm so excited about. Well, Anish Chopra, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. Well, thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast. <laughs>